So earlier this week, I was talking to Brittany, who's on staff here, and I was, you know, talking about the message and how I normally, you know, try to start with a story, something engaging. And this week, we're starting a series called Uninvited King. And so I wanted to begin with the story talking about how I was not invited or I was uninvited somewhere, and I couldn't think of something that was funny. And I was like, Brittany, have you ever been uninvited somewhere? So that's the question I want us to begin with this morning. Have you ever been uninvited somewhere? And here's the definition of invi- uninvited as we get into this. Here's the definition so we're on the same page. Attending somewhere or doing something without having been asked. Okay, so we're starting this series, Uninvited King, talking about the King, Jesus, who we'll talk about a lot in the series, and talking about how he came to earth, not invited, not asked to do for us what we needed, even though we still rejected him. And I was like, so I needed something about being uninvited. I was like, have you ever been uninvited somewhere? And she proceeds to, to tell me multiple times within the past year of things that she has not been invited to. And so I was like, all right, let's talk about this. So the first one was our, our youngest, Roman, is almost nine months old. And she was the one of the ones planning Christina's baby shower. And so she's getting all this stuff together, planning, you know, what you do at baby shower things, you know, whatever that takes place there. And, uh, and then she finds out from someone else that got the invitation, like, Brittany, are you coming? She's like, I never got an invitation to the, to the baby shower that I was planning, okay? So she didn't invite it. And then she was saying, I think this happened also in the past year, uh, one of the women here at New City was having a craft night at her house and that Brittany is good friends with. They were in a community group with each other last year. And someone asked, I think week of, Brittany, are you going to this craft night? And Brittany was like, what craft night? I didn't get an invitation. And I was gonna be like, Brittany, you need better friends, right? I was like, <laughs> but before I could say that, she goes on to go, and you wanna know, Dylan, you don't wanna know where else I have, I also don't get invited to, your meetings. And you may not know this, but we use Google Calendar for stuff. And so whenever we have meetings, I'll like type it in, whatever. And for some reason, Brittany gets left off like half of them. And so we're like, hey, you ready? She's like, ready for what? What is going on here? And so, uh, sorry, Brittany, on behalf of everyone at New City Church who is not a good friend to you. Um, but that's what we're talking about this morning as we're beginning this series, Uninvited King, talking about this king who came who was not asked. And this morning, we're going to begin by talking about the plan. Now, what we know about Jesus is that God planned for him to come. But I think what oftentimes is we know that that happened, but we don't understand the detail in which it happened. And so that's the question. And here's uh, how I want us to be, begin this morning. Um, we've asked the question, have you ever been somewhere you've shown up uninvited? And so here what here's what I want us to know as we begin, okay? Here's what I want us to know, that our redemption was always God's plan. So our redemption was always God's plan. Now here is, if you've been in church for a while, you, you might be familiar with this. Even if you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, that makes sense. If God knows everything, then he planned to send a Messiah to save us. And, and we kind of understand that. But what I really want us to drill down into this morning is how much planning went involved because that shows us how much God actually cares. And so there's a couple of scriptures we could look to. First will be in Genesis 12. Um, you don't have to flip there. You can if you want, but it'll also be on the screen. Uh, this is kind of the plan from the beginning that God would send a Messiah. And so what's happening before Genesis 12 shows up is that God creates the world and it's good and it's right and it's perfect. And then sin and death because of us enters the world. We disobey God. And so sin and death enters the world and the world is not what it's supposed to be. And so then uh, the humans begin to populate the world, take over the world. And there's so much pain and evil evil and suffering, stuff that we probably, it's even, even today where we we're, we're kind of used to seeing suffering. We, you know, we have the internet and TV so we can see suffering all over the world. Even to, by these standards, if we were alive back then, we would even be, I think, appalled at how evil it was. So God sends a flood, but still saves one family to repopulate the earth. He could have been like, no, I'm done with this thing. You guys are evil. You have rejected me. But because of he loved us, he said, no, I'm not going to give up. So he creates, uh, so he sends the flood, Noah's family, they repopulate the earth. And then if you're familiar with the Genesis story, then ha- what happens next is the Tower of 
of, ba- of Babel, which is in Genesis 11, where basically humans were trying to be God. Again, a bunch of evil and suffering. And what God could have done is he could have ended the whole thing. He could have said, no, I'm done with you. This isn't going to work. But yet in his loving and his patience towards us, he said, you know, instead of doing that, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a savior of the world to make it possible for you and I to receive the grace and mercy of God that we don't deserve. So here's what's happened in Genesis 12. Real, brief, real briefly, it says this, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Abram, he's, this is Abraham before his name was changed to Abraham. Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So this is after the Tower of Babel. Humans are trying to do their own thing. God said, no, I'm going to still rescue and save you. He says this in verse two, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So he's talking about how he's going to make Abraham the father of the Israelites. He's going to create this nation of Israel. Then verse three, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And then he says this, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what we see is God's plan is to send a Messiah to bless the entire earth that anyone past, present, or in the future who recognizes our need for Christ will be forgiven and given grace, not because we did anything, because of what Christ has done for us. Now, I think that is what we're familiar with. We're familiar with that story. We understand that God planned to send a Messiah. What I think we don't understand sometimes is the uh, excruciating and painful detail in which that took place. I want to give you an example of what I mean by this. So Isaiah 52, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there a phone. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in front of you. You can go there. It'll be page 650, and you can take one of those black ones home if you don't own one. That is our gift to you. And I want to read this passage and show you just some of the detail in which God planned to send a Messiah. Now, the context of Isaiah 52, Isaiah is living around 700 years before Jesus is to be born. He is a prophet to the Israelites. Now, I guess against kind of what we normally think that's happening is most of the prophecies in the Old Testament are not actually about Jesus or about the future. Most of them are concerning Israel. However, there are some times where the prophets were speaking about the future. So this is one of those times. Now, uh, what's happening here is that Isaiah, it's kind of like a double meaning. So what's, what's happening here is he's actually speaking to the Israelites, something that they would have understood, but also the New Testament writers after Jesus came, uh, went back and said, no, he was actually talking about the Messiah. So because of time's sake, we won't talk about how this prophecy actually also influenced Israel and their modern day, how they would have understood it. We're just going to focus on how this was also at the same time prophesying about a Messiah to come. So here's what he says, starting in verse 13 of Isaiah 52, prophesying about a Messiah who is to come. Remember, 700 years before Jesus was born, it says this, see, my servant will be successful. Servant, he's talking about this Messiah. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many, uh, as many were appalled at you, his appearance uh, was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. What's it talking about there? It's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what's interesting about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, most robbers and thieves and murderers who were crucified in the Roman Empire were not beaten. You were either beaten or you were crucified. You were not both. But Jesus was actually horrifically beaten and crucified. So 700 years before what's happened, Isaiah said the Messiah would be so beaten and disfigured that you would not be able to notice him. We know that that actually happened. Verse verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of them, for they will see what they had not told him, what 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 had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. So what, what's saying there is that this king would come, he would be beaten, he would die, then he would resurrect. And all these rulers would be like, oh my goodness, something crazy is happening here. And here's Isaiah 53, and here's where it gets good. It says this, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew, uh, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. So what they're saying here is that this Messiah, this Jesus, was not going to be an attractive man. So the movies that we see of this chiseled Jesus with this nice flowing hair and this awesome nice beard... That's not what Jesus looked like, okay? He was, not, he was not attractive at all, which is why so many people looked at him and said, no way, no way. There's nothing significant about you. There's no way that you could be some savior, some king, because you were not attractive at all. And just a complete side note, he also wasn't white, okay? He was not white. His mom and his dad were not white. There's nothing white about Jesus, just as a side note, okay? So he wasn't white. But he also wasn't attractive. Here's what we know about Jesus. Historically speaking, he was not an attractive man. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Now, what do we know about Jesus, the Messiah who came? He was rejected, he was despised, and he suffered for our benefit. We know that Jesus, historically, he was a man who suffered, right? And what uh, Isaiah is saying here is that he was doing it for our behalf, verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but in turn, we regarded him stricken, uh, stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. In other words, Jesus came to do this, to give his life for us, but we would regard him as stricken, struck down by God. What do we know about Jesus? As he's being beaten and nailed to the cross, what do the Roman uh, officials and guards say to him? Can't your God save you? Can't you save yourself? If you're actually God, can't you do something about this, right? So what Isaiah is saying actually came to fruition. Verse 5, but... He, talking about this Messiah, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. So this Messiah would come, would be pierced on a tree, which that's what Jesus was, was pierced on a cross. He would be rejected because of us so that we might be able to find peace in him. Verse 6, we all went astray like sheep, and we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So as a side note here, when it says we all, it means everybody. It doesn't just mean the bad people. It doesn't just mean the people whose bad somehow outweighs their good. No, it means everybody, every single one of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so Jesus came for us all, for every single one of us. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the, uh, to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. What do we know historically about Jesus when he was on trial? He's being mocked. He's being, everyone's saying these things about him. And Pontius Pilate, who's leading this whole thing, he says, why don't you speak out against yourself? Why don't you defend yourself? If these things aren't true, why don't you say something about it? What do we know about Jesus? He was silent. He didn't say anything. Why? Because he willingly died for our behalf, on our benefit. He did not want to defend himself so that he could come and do what he was supposed to do. So we know that happened. Verse 8, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. In other words, what it's saying there is that he would, be, he would die. So he was struck off from the land of the living. What happened to Jesus? He died. But verse 9, it says this. He was assigned a new grave, or he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and, not ha and had not spoken 
deceitfully. What do we know historically about Jesus? Jesus was buried in the tomb of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, not Joseph's father, or not Jesus' father, a man named Joseph who was a religious leader at that time, had started to follow Jesus and was a rich man. And so he takes Jesus' body and puts him in his tomb. So we know historically speaking, 700 years before this Messiah would come, this Messiah would be laid in a rich man's tomb. What happens with Jesus? He's actually laid in a rich man's tomb. Verse 10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. In other words, what it's saying there is God and Jesus felt it was good and right for Jesus to do this on our behalf. Why? Because ultimately he conquered death. So his days were prolonged. Jesus is still alive. Death did not defeat him. Verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify Many. In other words, after the three days in the tomb, he will satisfy God's wrath. And so for anyone who trusts in him, will have an opportunity to live and be justified by him. Now it says in verse 11, justified many, which means we need to understand that when we talk about Jesus coming and dying and being grace-filled and dying for the sins of the world, he died, his death was sufficient for all the sins of the world, but it only actually covers those who actually trust in him. So we need to understand that yes, Jesus came and died for anybody, but for everybody, but it does not mean we can live our own life. It does not mean we can do whatever we want to do. And then automatically when we die, we'll see God and we're good because of what Jesus has done. Now, what he's saying there is that we have to follow and trust in him in order to, to be justified, in order to be forgiven. And then verse 12, it says this, Therefore, I will give him, talking about Jesus, the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death, yet was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. What's happening here? Verse 12 is like a, it's a, it's like a, it's like an imagery of when a king goes to battle. So Jesus goes to battle here. And when, king, when this king wins, he wins the spoils and he shares it with his allies. And what do we know about anyone who trusts in Christ? That we are an heir, that we are going to receive when we enter into God's kingdom, what Jesus is going to receive, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, that we actually get to receive the spoils of Jesus because of Jesus. And here's why this is important. I go through this to say this, that, that this was written over 700 years before Jesus was born. So we see these details talking about the plan in which this Messiah would come. Now, Jesus actually fulfills over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, some of them are supernatural. We cannot, we cannot prove them. We can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. We can't prove that he was born of a virgin. But many of these prophecies were actually historical facts that we can look back and say that actually happened. That actually happened. And you may be sitting here and you may be like, well, how do we actually know Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus? Because that's kind of crazy because there was probably 10-ish there that he fulfilled. And you're saying there's more than that. How do we actually know Isaiah was 700 years? Maybe that's just tradition. And maybe you, maybe that's you and you're like, well, I don't think that's true. We don't know that. Here's what we do know. In the late 1940s, uh, something called the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the Middle East. These were documents that were, had large portions of the Old Testament. And much of Isaiah was actually written in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So even if you want to Reject this, reject this idea that's actually 700 years old. We know for a fact it was written at least 150 years before this Messiah would come that he would do this. And what do we know about Jesus? He checks every single, and this is only 10 verses, guys. He checks every single item off the list. And here's why this is important for us to know. And here's why we need to know that our redemption was always God's plan. Because God's plan is beautiful because it is intentional. You see, it's not just beautiful that this idea that he would come and die in love and give us grace, like that in and of itself is awesome. But what makes it beautiful is how intentional 
it was. That he went out of his way to say, I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to take them, make them all happen in, to, in the way that exactly that I said that it would. And we know that the more intentional we are with things, the more beautiful it is. Let me give you an example. Guys, if you're married or maybe you have a, a girlfriend, uh, you might, this may have happened to you, but there's been times in Christina's and I's marriage, we've been married a little over seven years, where um, she, where things have happened and she thought I went out of my way to do something good and I didn't actually do it, but I was like, yeah, let's, like, let me give you an example. And maybe you've done this or not. Um, uh, when I, a couple weeks ago, we were in Guatemala. We took a team to Guatemala. And the last night there, Edwin, who was our translator, gave all of us or gave most of us some coffee, some Colombian coffee or Guatemalan coffee. I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee. So I take it home and I'm unpacking. And before I even say anything, Christina sees this bag of coffee in my suitcase. And she grabs it. She goes, you brought me coffee. You, you're the best. You thought of me. And I'm like, I did, didn't I? Yeah, of course I, I thought of you. And it's, and it's like, what is like, yeah, now I only waited like 30 seconds and I was like, no, he gave it to all of us. Like, I wanted to say, yeah, like we were super busy and it was pouring and I said, everyone stop. I'm going to run into this coffee shop for my wife. But that didn't happen. But she thought, now she was still glad to have the coffee, but it wasn't as, you know, or uh, maybe about a year or so ago, I was getting uh, her oil changed and wherever I went, for some reason they vacuumed the car, I guess. And so I bring it home. I don't, actually, I don't even know if they vacuumed it, but she thought it was vacuumed. And so I come home and she gets in the car and the next day she goes, you, vac- you cleaned my car. Thank you so much. I didn't ask you to do that. And I'm like, yeah, I did do that, right? I, of, of course I did. And I think that, I let that one wait a day or two before I said anything, right? There's the deal. She was still glad her car was clean, right? She's still glad that she had the coffee, but it didn't mean the same thing, right? And that's what, when we see the, the plan, <laughs> like, yeah, didn't mean the same thing. All right. <laughs> Maybe it didn't mean anything. I don't know. But, that, but that's the thing, right? Like we see Jesus. Now the difference between my, my plan and Jesus is his plans are awesome, okay? So regardless, even if we don't see the intentionality behind it, it's still amazing. But what I want us to understand is what actually makes it beautiful is the extreme detail he went to show us that he actually cared. And if that's true, that our redemption was God's, always God's plan, and it is beautiful because it is intentional, here's what we need to do with it. Here's what we need to do. We need to trust in God's plan. If it's true that his plan, what he did is the only way for us to receive grace and mercy of God, then we need to trust in God's plan. Now, in my experience, the vast majority of us, of people, don't want to be atheists. The vast majority of us don't want God not to exist, but there are various reasons why we may reject Jesus or reject God. I think there's, in my experience, there's three main reasons why we reject God other than we don't want him to be exist. I think most of us want it to be true. There's just reasons we have, we have issues with it. So here's the three reasons why, in my experience, people do not trust in God's plan or do not want to trust in God's plan. Here they are. Here's the first one, that we think our plan is better. We think our plan is better. And here's what mostly our plan is. As long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm fine. I've done more good than I've done, than I've done bad, so God will forgive me for my bad, and I'll go to heaven, and everything will be good. Here's the problem with that plan. The problem with that plan is you are not as good as you think you are. You're just not. I'm not as good as I think I am. Like, we are not as good at all. And here's, here's the thing, like, and we all know this to be true. Whenever somebody else does something or does something wrong, we're always quick to judge them and be like, how dare they? I can't believe they did this. But whenever, whenever we do something wrong, 
we're always so quick that there's always a reason for it. There's always a justification for it, which means that we don't think our bad is actually as bad as it is. Let me give you an example. I have friends, and maybe you have friends, or maybe you're this person, which is okay. We all have our weaknesses, who's a, who has a ton of road rage, okay? And I remember one time riding with a friend who has a ton of road rage, and like not just like someone cut you off until you're frustrated, but like yelling at them, like they can't hear you, and like doing all these things. I can't believe I'm such a bad driver, such a dumb driver, all these things. And so I was riding with him, and you know, he's like yelling at all these things. And then like we were getting onto the highway or whatever, and he cut somebody off. And what does he say? Not, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm such a bad driver. And he said, well, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a hurry, so I have to, there's a reason why I did this. Like I have to get somewhere, and, and they don't know. Or I'm in a bad mood today, right? And so everybody get out of my way. I'm gonna do, anytime you know, anytime these, this driver was, had a lot of road rage, but whenever they did something, there was always a reason why I was it okay. Right? And we never stopped to consider, maybe there's a reason why someone else did something. Right? So we always think, the bad that we do is not that bad. And we just need to understand that is not true. And if we think our plan is better, it's not. Like, I'll just be honest with you. That is a terrible plan. Do not follow your own plan. Instead, follow the plan where you can receive grace and mercy, not of yourself. So that's one reason why people reject Jesus. We think our plan is better. Here's a second reason. I think this one might be the biggest one, is that we haven't spent any time considering God's plan. In other words, I've found a lot of people, instead of actually taking some time and considering this Jesus guy and seeing is this true or is this not, just doesn't even think about it. And it's easy to reject something you don't think about. It's easy to say, well, I don't think Jesus could have rose from the dead. I don't think Jesus did all these things. But to do what we just did this morning and read just, what, 10, 15 verses and see prophecy after prophecy, historical prophecies that we can verify that we know are true actually happen, you have to do something with that. And if instead of doing something with that, you can just ignore it. And so what I have found is a lot of times we just don't take any time, either intentionally or unintentionally, actually seeing, is this possible? Is this true? And so if you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, this whole Bible, this whole God thing, let me just tell you, don't let this be your reason. Do not let this be your reason, simply that you didn't take any time considering it. So if you have questions, this is a safe place for you to be. We enjoy, we invite you to keep coming back. But don't let this be your reason that you reject God, which I have found, I think, is the number one biggest reason. is because we just don't spend any time thinking about it, so it's easy for us to say it's not true. But when you actually spend time reading it, it is a lot harder to reject. And here's the third reason. Another big reason, here's the third reason, that we have actually misunderstood God's plan. And so we think God and Jesus isn't true and doesn't exist because we've misunderstood it. And here's, let me give an example. Like we might, you might have been told that if I'm generous and I give, that all my debt will go away. And my debt hasn't gone away. And instead, I've just gotten more debt. And if that's what God is, I want nothing to do with him. Or we've been told, maybe you've been told, as long as I'm a good person, then God will love me and he'll give me what I want. Well, I'm a good person and my dad died of cancer. Or I'm a good person and I lost a child or I lost a spouse or my friend. Like, I'm a good, and so God didn't uphold his end of the bargain. And what we've done there is we've misunderstood the gospel, the knowing that this is the, in this life we will receive pain and suffering. It will not go as it should. But because of Jesus, one day we will stand in his face and he, we, everything that we don't understand will come clear. We'll be able to see in, in, in detail how God worked even pain and suffering for his glory and our good. So a lot of times we reject God because we have misunderstood what the gospel actually is. And here's what the gospel actually is. It'll be on the screen. It's a verse that mo many of us are familiar with. It says this, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him uh, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's eternal life. That's the verse that everybody knows. But what does John 3.17 say? Uh, it's kind of the forgotten verse. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. In other words, his first coming, Christmas, what we're celebrating in this time of year, was not to condemn the world, but to offer grace and forgiveness. When Jesus returns a second time, that is when he will judge the living and the dead, but the first time was purely to give us grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness. And so God's plan was to give us grace and forgiveness, to call us to something greater than ourselves, not because we earn it, because he is good. That is God's plan. And here's, to me, we've been alluding to it, and here's what's so magnificent about this, is that God's heart is revealed in God's plan. And so what we see here is not that just he loves us again by sending Jesus and that was great, but you begin to see how much he actually cares for us and how he's planned for us. Like, for example, we all know this, this to be true, right? That you plan for the things you care about, right? You plan for the things you care about. A wedding, the birth of your first child, a job interview, uh, an, you know, where you go to college, like maybe if you have an application that you had to fill out, like you, the things you care about, your first date, how you look, what you're going to do on the date. If you care about it, you plan for it. And the more you plan usually reveals the more you actually care about it, right? If you have a test coming up and you don't study and you don't care, it's because you don't care. That's why you didn't put any effort into it, right? The more you care, the more you plan. And what we see, the painstaking detail with which God planned to send this Messiah shows us just how much he loved us. Because reality is, he didn't have to do it. Like he could have sent, just sent Jesus and that be it. He didn't have to go through painstaking detail. This is what it's going to look like. But he did it because he cares for us. It reminds me, I read a few months ago, Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson. It's a great, it's very fascinating. It was a great read. And like Steve Jobs, like a lot of, you know, people that are successful, companies are successful, like he cared about the details. And I remember reading how, you know, Apple is different kind of than Microsoft and Android and, and other companies in the sense that they like to control everything. So they don't want you to manipulate their software or their hardware, like they want to be in control of the entire experience. And what's interesting is like when they started to build the first Macintoshes and the first iPhones is that Steve Jobs was obsessive, probably overly obsessive on stuff that was like inside the hardware that people would never see. And he wanted to make it look a certain way and he'd make them spend all this money on doing all these things that nobody would ever see. But why? Because he cared about the things that they, people didn't see, which means that the things that people could see were even greater. And even though people couldn't understand why they liked the product so much, is because when you care about the details, the other things will take care of itself. And so Jesus is caring about these details. I think there's, when we get to heaven, we're going to see in even more detail the things that we didn't realize that God planned for us and planned for Jesus to do. And he cared for it, even though we wouldn't see it. Why? Simply because he enjoyed it and because he loves it, which shows us that God's heart is revealed in God's plan. So here's why. We need to trust in God's plan. Just to be honest, here's why we need to trust in God's plan. Because there is no other plan. Like there is no, there, there is no other plan. You can trust in your own plan, which is not going to work out, or you can trust in God's plan. There is no other plan by which we can receive grace and mercy. It's all what Christ has done for us. The question is, will we accept it when we trust and follow him? Even if that means that life in this life, things will not always go the way that we want it to go. There is no other plan. I like what it says in Acts chapter five. Um, you can flip there. It'll also be on the screen. Um, Peter and John are uh, are talking, or sorry, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested by some of the religious leaders in, uh, in Jerusalem. They had healed a man, and they were talking about, this is after Jesus has resurrected, gone back to heaven, and the re- Jewish religious leaders are like, stop talking about this Jesus man. So they, they arrest him. The Sadducees arrest him, which are a religious sect of the Israelites who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They arrest Peter and John, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the rulers of the Jews. 
to try to get him to stop talking about Jesus, here's what happened. So Peter and John were two of Jesus' disciples. Here's what happened, verse 5. After they were arrested, the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest, Caiaphas, John Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Basically, a bunch of religious leaders. Verse 7, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? How did you heal this person? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This is Jesus. Jesus is the stone that rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then they say this, verse 12, there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You can beat us, you can jail us, you can starve us, and you can kill us, but we're not going to stop because there is no other name and there's no other hope and there's no other grace that we can have instead of Jesus. I, it's funny, like I, I think about Paul later on in the New Testament, also one of the apostles, uh, one of the leaders in the foundational church. He's in jail at one point and he writes that... Uh, um, that and uh, what does he say? I can't, I'm blanking out right now. He's in jail and he says, uh, What is my goodness? What does he say? He basically says, and, um, In Christ, what does he say? Someone else, someone else, someone help me here. I really want to make this point. Oh my goodness, this is awful. Anyway, I don't know what verse it is. He talks about, oh, here we go. He says, To live in Christ is to die as gain. Oh my goodness. He's a, and here's what's funny about this. To li- thank you. Wow. You should. You should be questioning, not thinking that I knew a Bible verse. But he, I, I imagine Paul, and I imagine all these, uh, the, all these apostles and the disciples follow Jesus being like, people are like, we're going to kill you if you don't stop talking. Well, to die is gain. I'm going to go in glory. It's great. Well, then we're going to keep you alive, and we're just going to keep you towards you. Well, to live is Christ. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Well, then we're going to kill you. To die is gain. We're going to keep you alive. Well, to live is Christ. And they can't, like, we cannot shut up these people. Why? Because they had experienced the love and grace and mercy, and they knew that there is no other plan, there is no other way by which we may be saved. And this thing, here's the thing about this, is you may be sitting here and you may be like, that sounds exclusive and mean that there's no other plan. Here's what you also need to know about that. Not only is there no other plan, but there's also no better plan. I mean, think about it this way. You do nothing. You do absolutely nothing. It is Christ who, in excruciatingly detail, was planned before the foundation of the world to come and give us grace and forgiveness so that we trust and follow him. Now, in response to that, it changes our lives. Hopefully, we, we become more like him. We become less selfish. We become more generous. We, we do these things that build our character, but it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't make God love us more. It's, in, it's simply in response to what he has done. And as we fall and screw up and mess up and sin, he doesn't love us any less. It's all because what Christ has done for us. There is no better way to do this. Like there's nothing you do, there is nothing you add. It is all about what Christ has done for us. And to me, I'll take that any day of the week, that it's not up to me and that I can know today that God loves me and God cares. God loves me and God cares. So we need to trust in God's plan because there's no better plan and there's no other plan. And that being said, here's the bottom line for us this morning that I want us to take away, and that's this. That God's plan is our provision. Here's what all that to be said. We talk about these details and all these plans. Here's what we need to know this morning. That God's plan is our provision. And plan there is not only, I mean, it's like synonymous with Jesus as well. 
that Jesus is our provision, not our good works, not our good outweighing our bad, not us giving a lot of money to the church, not us reading our Bible every morning, not us, you know, being generous and loving people and serving people. Those things are good, but that's not our provision. That is not what saves us. It is what Jesus has done. God's plan is our provision. I don't want to read two passages real quick uh, as we close. The first is in 1 Peter. Peter was one of the, it was the foundational leader of the early church. Here's what he says. It'll also be on the screen. Verse 18, chapter one, it says this, talking about God's plan. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so God planned for this to happen, but was revealed to you in these last times, or revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, it's not what you have done. It's what Christ has done that was planned before the foundation of the world. And one more passage really quick in uh, John chapter one, it says this. Now this John was written by the disciple John, but the John we're reading about in this, these three verses is not the disciple John. It's John the Baptist, who was, a calf, who was a cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus. He's going around and, and Jesus calls John the greatest person, the greatest man that's ever lived. And what was jo- John was a prophet who was making way for the, for the Messiah to come. So he begins to tell Israel that this Messiah is about to be on the scene. Then Jesus's earthly ministry begins. And John has a bunch of disciples, a bunch of followers, because he's talking about a, tra- and a message that's pretty attractive. They kind of know this, this Messiah might come. Is he here? All these followers. And then here's what happens. Verse 29 of chapter one. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me becomes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So he's existed before me, or he's always, even though I'm older than him, why? Because Jesus has always existed. And what he says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who willingly, like a lamb, laid down his life, didn't argue, didn't try to tell the religious leaders, no, this isn't true. He was beaten, mocked, and scored before us for what we have done, not for what he has done, which again is showing us and reminding us that God's plan is our provision. The Lamb of God has come to be slain for the benefit of the entire world, and this is why we celebrate the season. This is why there's so much hope and joy in this Christmas season, no matter what you may be going through. You know, we know that this is not the end. This is not it. That God's plan was to send a Messiah who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the question for you and I this morning is, are we going to accept that or are we going to reject that? Are we going to accept that the Lamb of God has taken away our sins or are we going to lean on our plan that we think is better, that we think we're good? Or we could just be honest and no matter what you believe about God, all of us can be honest and say, we've all messed up. We've all done things we would even admit are wrong. We all need someone to give us grace and forgiveness. That is why God came. That was his plan. His plan is our provision. The Lamb of God has come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy and your love. Thank you for uh, the, the painstaking detail with which you provided the Messiah that you did all these things that you did not have to do simply to show us that you care, to show us that you love us. And my prayer here this morning is that all of us would see that. If we're not sure about this Jesus thing, that we would see with new eyes that you love us and that you care for us. And if we do, our followers of you, that we would just be reminded and encouraged of your love and your grace this morning. 
that we would know that it wasn't just a great, awesome idea for you to send a Messiah, but that we would see in the detail on which you planned to send him reveals to us exactly how much you love us. So God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for the provision that it's given us. In my prayer this morning, no matter what we may be going through, no matter what we may be dealing with, no matter what we may be feeling, in the midst of a season that's supposed to be joyful because of friends and family, all these things, and if we're in a season of suffering, if this is a particularly difficult time for us, that we would trust in you, knowing this isn't the end. God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for provision. Thank you for being the Lamb of God who came and was slain on our behalf so that any one of us can have grace and forgiveness, not because of what we have done, because of what you have done. In Jesus' name I pray.